Amen. Take your copy of God's Word, if you will, this morning and turn to Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. We're going to focus on verses 18 through 20 in just a few moments. We're going to read that. And we're going to talk some about how the gospel leads to real change. Now, I recognize, even in my title, that I'm in perilous waters. What do I mean by that? If you mention change in a Baptist church, you're probably setting yourself up for at least some criticism. Just a little, right? I've been pastoring for 20 plus years now, and I recognize that it is very difficult to even talk about change and especially to formalize it by putting it into something like a, a title of a sermon. Yet, when I was at First Baptist Zachary some years ago, our uh, minister of announcements got up and he began talking about some of the things going on in our church. And he in particular drew attention to our ministry plan. Now, for First Baptist Church of Zachary, when you mention ministry plan, it referred to the budget, okay? And what he said that day is that we're going to have a meeting on Wednesday night to discuss the changes in the ministry plan. Now, I didn't preface this by saying he made this announcement in our 8.30 traditional service. Sounded okay, right? That week, one of my ministers came in, and he said, Hey, you need to go see Miss So-and-so. And I said, What do I need to go see her for? Is she okay? She, oh, she's fine. She's not sick or anything like that. I said, Well, what, what's going on with her? Well, she's about to leave the church. I said, What? How, why is she leaving the church? Well, she heard Sunday morning that you all are doing away with the 830 traditional service. I said, who said that? Who said, what? We're not doing away with the 830 service. And they said, well, she heard the announcement that said, we're looking at our ministry plan changes. And all she knew was you're getting rid of the 830 service. I said, are you kidding? So I went and I smoothed things over and we had a good little time. And I looked at that minister of announcements and I said, you never mention change again, ever, <laughs> ever, ever in that service. And sometimes we don't want to think about changes. Now, there are some great changes that have happened over the years in our churches. For example, air conditioning. I'll take a cheap amen any way I can get it, all right? There are some changes we have welcomed. But let me say to you that if the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ has entered into your heart, has, has come and given you hope and forgiveness, then that means that in your personal life, there should be change. The gospel changes people. The gospel changes people, it changes churches, and it changes the culture itself. All throughout the book of Acts, we've seen that. We've studied through the book of Acts over the last several, several months. I know some of you think it's never going to end. But we've seen the change of the gospel, how it has worked in people's hearts and lives, and how people have responded, and how people have seen the direction and trajectory of their life totally changed. And here again, in Acts 19, you see that change. Now, let me set the context because, again, we're only going to read just a few verses here in the grand narrative. So let me set the context for you. 
Paul is out again on another missionary journey. This is the third missionary journey as we have it reflected in the book of Acts. He is out once again sharing the gospel. And he comes to this city named Ephesus. Now, he had made a brief stop there on the second journey, but now he really gets to go in and he gets to reason with people. He gets to talk to them about Christ. And as his strategy was, he began in the synagogue because he had a connection with those who were in the synagogue. He could talk to them about their heritage. He could talk to them about uh, the Old Testament hope and promise of the Messiah. He began in the synagogue. But when hostility broke out in the synagogue, it says that he moved to the lecture hall of Tyrannus. And there he was for two years. For two years reasoning and sharing the gospel of Christ with people. He spends just about three years in Ephesus. Now think, Paul is not one to settle down or stay anywhere very long. But he stays there in Ephesus. And he shares the good news. And through his teaching and also through the power of the Holy Spirit as it produces miracles in people's hearts and lives, there are people that give in to the gospel. They commit themselves to Christ. Even through some of the powerful moments and events of the miracles, the, the work of Jesus is demonstrated. So in verses 18 through 20, you have what I would refer to as summary statements about what happens and what occurs in Ephesus as they've seen the miracles, as they've heard the teaching of Paul. This is what Dr. Luke tells us in verse 18. And many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. Also many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted up the value of them and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. And so the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. So it says that all of these different ones there in Ephesus, they come to faith. There's a change. Now, I want to tell you today that as we talk about change because of the gospel, change comes as we turn toward him, toward Christ, and as we turn away away from idolatry and immorality. Those are the two truths I want to give you today, and I want you to think through as you think about change in your own personal life. We turn to Christ. When we hear the gospel and we begin to think upon what it says and we begin to process its truth in our hearts and lives, we turn to Jesus. We turn to God himself. And that's what the Scripture says. The Scripture says, And many who had believed... The idea is that they came to faith. They faith. Uh, it, it's so hard to communicate this, especially in our English language. I remember when I was going through the original language of the New Testament and studying it a little bit, you would find the word faith, and faith could be a noun or a verb like in the original language. In the English language, it's pretty much like a noun. We have faith. It is our faith. I mean, not many of you use faith as a verb, right? I, I've never heard anybody go up to uh, Leo and say, Leo, I faith you. Never heard that. Most of the time they would say what? Leo, I believe you. And hopefully they could believe you. I'm not sure. But I believe. I, I believe you. Faith was a verb. It wasn't just a noun. 
As a matter of fact, later on, John in his gospel, John will use, that the only way he'll use the word faith is as a verb because it is active. And here it says that they believe, that is that they have faith. Now, faith is more than intellectual assent. It's more than just saying in your mind, yeah, I believe Jesus is Lord. Belief is a total and radical commitment to God and to Jesus Christ as our Savior. It is submitting to him. It is surrendering ourselves to him. So it says that they turn to him. They had faith. They committed themselves. They made a decision. They made a decision that Jesus was and that Jesus is Lord. And they made a decision to follow him. You know, when we turn to him, as the Ephesians did, as many of them did, it has to begin with a decision. Now, I believe that the Holy Spirit speaks to us. I believe he convicts us. Before you and I can come to salvation, I'm convinced that the Holy Spirit has to do a work in our hearts and lives. I am. I think the Holy Spirit has to show us that we're sinners. And therefore, we have the strength and we have the wisdom, hopefully, to make a decision for Christ. But we have to make a decision. How fearful is it for people to make decisions sometimes? I don't know about you, but there are some of us in this crowd that are indecisive. Yes? Okay, you just wait. I'll give you, because uh, I know you're going to stay for Bible study. I'll give some of you, uh, let's see, maybe uh, an hour and a half, two hours or something. And I'm going to just predict that indecision will be on display. What do you mean about that, Dr. Reggie? When you go to try to choose somewhere to eat, <laughs> where do you want to go? Now, see, you wind-shaped staffers, I, I'm, I'm praying that somebody just says, this is what we're going to do. Because I can't imagine this many different indecisive kind of hearts and minds right here. I mean, because, I mean, I got four kids. There's six of us in the family. We leave. We begin. And we don't usually eat too much on Sunday because just for me, just for me, I've got to usually preach on Sunday night. So I want to be in a good spiritual frame of mind. So I don't want to go eat because the decision to go eat and the decision where we're going to eat will mess me up spiritually the rest of the day. <laughs> I'm a wreck. I'm a wreck. I mean, it got to the point in my household, if you don't decide where we're going, we're going to McDonald's. We're going to McDonald's. That's where we're going. It kind of does make people make some decisions, though. People get real decisive very quickly. You have to make a decision. It says, it says that they had faith, that they committed their lives, that they made a decision to follow Jesus as Lord. And you have seen that, again, through the narrative of Dr. Luke, through the book of Acts. You have seen decisions made. It begins with the decision to turn your heart and your life toward God. But folks, it is an ongoing decision. What do you mean by that? You and I are saved one time. I believe that. God comes in our heart. The gospel invades us. Makes a difference. But every day, there is a surrender to the Lordship of Jesus. Every day, there is turning to him. When we get up in the morning, 
We have lunch in the, at midday as we go to bed at night. There's still, or there should be, a conscious decision to submit our lives to Christ. It's a decision. It's intentionality in who we are, that we're going to follow Him. Listen, there are times when I know that you and I want to make decisions for people. Now, there are times people will come in my office, and, and I see, and, and I'm convinced that they do need to make decisions to follow the Lord more closely. Let, let's say there's somebody that comes in my office, and they begin talking to me about their marriage relationship and how it is on the rocks and how they are, they are determining or at least believing in their heart that they are going to leave their spouse. Do you not believe that I want to make a decision for them right there to say, hey, this is not, this is not the answer. This is not the answer. There are people who come into my office sometimes and they have addictive behaviors. And I will look at them and I, I'll be like, I just, if I could just get you in a treatment center, if I could help you with that decision, if I could make this decision for you, there are times on Sunday morning when I know there are people sitting here that are as lost as could be. And I wished, I wished that during the invitation I could go back and I could drag them down this aisle. Not going to do it, by the way. But I wished I could. But you know what I've realized? That you and I have to take ownership in our lives for our relationship with Christ. As much as I want to do things for you, you have to make a decision. If you find somebody that's got an addictive behavior, we can put them in treatment centers over and over and over. But until they make a decision that there has to be something different in their life, until they make a decision that they have got to find some hope through Jesus Christ, until they make a decision, it will be all for naught. We have to turn to him has to be a decisive turn. They had faith. They believed. Folks, we must own our faith. We must intentionally turn. Some of you who are in here, uh, you may attend here and you've been attending here and we are grateful for you. Always, those who attend here in the church. But you may look at your background and you may say, hey, I was... I was um, baptized as an infant. It's kind of like the baby dedication you just saw a moment ago for us, and that's kind of was our decision. No, I respect parents who dedicate their children, but there must come a time in your life where you own your faith and make a decision for Christ Jesus. As much as we celebrate with Colin Brooke. There needs to be a day when Jack comes to faith in Jesus Christ. He must own his faith. He must make his own decision. You and I cannot live on our grandmother's religion. You and I cannot live on other people's relationship to God. We ourselves must make a decision in our hearts and lives to say we will turn to God. We will turn to Christ. Those in Ephesus... Those who had seen the gospel and understood it and the spirit had worked in their life, they turned. D.L. Moody, preacher from many years ago, said that man is born with his back toward God. When he truly repents, 
He turns around and he faces God. You and I have to have a moment in our life where basically we echo the words of King David who said, I thought on my ways and turned my feet unto your testimonies. Think about that. I thought about who I was. I thought about who you were. And God, I intentionally made a decision to turn my feet toward you. We must turn to him. And look at what it says. It says that they came confessing and telling their deeds. They had faith. Perfect tense, which means that they had had faith in the past, but it had abiding consequences in their lives. What were those abiding consequences? That they would confess their sins, that they would tell their deeds, that they were open with God, they were open with others, they were authentic in who they were. Now that word, confess, in the original language, I've always marveled at how this word was put together. The word basically comes from the Greek homo legeo. Homo, which means same. Legeo, to speak. Lagos, the word. So it means to speak the same thing as. When you confess, what are you doing? You're speaking the same thing as. When you confess that Jesus is Lord, what are you doing? You're saying, God, I say the same thing as you do. I believe Jesus is the Son of God. He is Lord. When you confess your sins, what are you saying? You're saying, God, I'll look at my sins like you look at my sins. God, these are abhorrent things. And I'm sorry for that because you are holy and you look at these sinful acts. Confession to say the same thing is. So they came and they said the same thing about Jesus. They said the same thing about sin in their life. The same thing that God, the Holy One, had said and made a statement of. So he spoke. They confessed. They told their deeds. Now, I'm going to be honest. I don't know if I want many of my deeds told. There's some things I just... But when you come before a welcoming God, a loving and a compassionate God, who has saved you despite your sin, then it's so easy for you to be open with him and open with others, confessing. We turn to God, and as I said, we turn away. What do we turn away from? We turn away from idols. Note here that they come and they, some of them have been practicing magic. And they begin to burn their magical books, the books of sorcery. Now, I know that is hard for some of us. I mean, I'm a book lover, okay? And to think that any book would be burned, I know that offends us. I mean, especially a Harry Potter book. I mean, you're thinking to yourself, that's going to be, but these were books of sorcery. And they come and they, they said, we're going to these, give these things up. Why did they practice magic in Ephesus? Partly because of their allegiance to the pagan deities. Because they were given to much idolatry. Now, a few weeks ago, I got to go over to Ephesus and got to walk through the ruins of Ephesus. A lot of us did, many of us who are in here today. Dale, you got to do that too, didn't you? 
Did you stay at the ice cream stand, or did you actually go through the archaeological dig? You, your ice cream, that's what I thought. You'd been there, you'd done that, that's fine. You'd seen those things, you know, all about the Bible and all that kind of stuff. Anyway, um, when we were there, we were walking through, they talked to us about uh, the temple to Artemis. Or if you read Acts here in the narrative, you will see the Roman name of that same goddess, Diana. And that it was a great temple. As a matter of fact, it was four times larger than the Parthenon itself there in Athens. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was tremendous. And there were many other idols that were worshipped there in Ephesus. I mean, but for the temple of Diana, they believed that the gods themselves had established it. A meteor had fallen into that exact spot, and that is where they built this temple, as though gods or the gods had sent them this sign. They practiced magic. You would find it all throughout Ephesus. But when they turned to God, they turned away from idolatry. Because look, if you turn toward something, that means you are turning away from other things. If you turn toward God, that means you are leaving idolatry behind you. Some of you say, well, I've never gone into a specific temple where it worshipped an idol. As I said just a week or so ago, idols are all around us. Don't miss it. What are those things that are driving, that are competing for our attention? What are those things? What are those things that seem to be consuming us? I'm going to say to you that whatever we are giving our attention to the most, that number one in our life, if we have somehow moved Jesus to the side and we have allowed these things to come into our lives, then those things are idols. We turn from those idols. And as I said earlier, we got to continue to turn from idolatry. Because you know what happens? We come, we're saved. Jesus, we're turning to him. But all of a sudden, we start hearing the whispers of the idols in our ears. We begin to at least ever so slightly begin to turn our head and to try to hear what they're saying and to try to see who it is. And if you are not careful, and just like that, you have turned back around. And you have taken your eyes off of Christ Jesus. Is your job an idol? Is your money? Power? Your girlfriend, your boyfriend? Sports? Is something attaining your attention or calling you to devotion that has, and it has separated you from your first love, the Lord Jesus? I'm going to tell you, it is tough, isn't it? Idols are all around us. Materialism is all around us. It is tough to constantly reject the idols. Listen, the God of prosperity and success. See, sometimes we make fun of the Greeks and the Romans as they thought about these pagan deities 
and how they worship them. But understand, really, at the heart of all of this is they believe that these pagan deities, that they had local jurisdiction, that they had certain geographical areas where they, like, controlled. So what did they do? They wanted to appease those gods so that they could be successful, so that they could be prosperous, so that their crops would grow, so that things would happen good for them. And today, we still chase the gods of prosperity and success. I'm all for school, all for education. I gave a lot of my life there, more than Leslie wanted me to. Oh, she wanted me to finish. She just said, you could have done this earlier. <laughs> but to pursue even education so that you can be prosperous, successful. We struggle with these things. We struggle constantly. But we are to consistently turn away from that which would draw our attention from the Lord Jesus. You want to ask yourself if you've got some idols in your life? I've said it very often. All you got to do really is look at two things. You got to look at your calendar and see how much time you are committing to certain aspects. By the way, some of these things are good. Job is good, right? A job is good. Some of you may not want to work, but job is good. Uh, it is good to have some type of influence. It's good to play sports. It's good to do those things. What Satan does is he takes the good things and he distorts it and he uses those to draw our attention from Jesus. But I say to you, check your calendar and check your bank account. I used to say, check your, check, uh, your bank account and see what you spent at Walmart. You realize all of a sudden that Walmart is your idol. Just kidding. Just kidding. They're usually not this tense. Y'all have got them totally. I don't know what it is. They're afraid to show any emotion with you. Gracie, you know, they're, they're usually a little lighter in this service or so. Some of them need to repent, but maybe they will at the end, right? <clears throat> the God of prosperity, success, the idols that are in our lives. We turn away from idols. We turn away from immorality. That kind of goes hand in hand. Idolatry, immorality. They worshiped these idols. And the immorality, oh, it was so rampant in Ephesus. The immorality that you would find. Even the cultic worship of Diana, the fertility goddess, even the worship itself was immoral and unrighteous and ungodly. The philosopher Heraclitus, some people have called him the weeping philosopher. You know what he said as he lived in Ephesus? He said, there is no way a person can live in Ephesus and not weep over the immorality that it would see. Immorality everywhere. When we were there, we walked down, we saw the great library. And it is still incredible to look at it. But they said right across from the library was a brothel. And basically, under the street, there was a canal, uh, a tunnel, that would lead you from the library over to the brothel. It was immorality everywhere. And what happened? They came. They brought their magic books. They brought the books of sorcery. They confronted their immorality. 
They burned it. They burned those books. 50,000 pieces of silver. It's hard to give the equivalent in today's money, but let me just put it this way. One piece of silver would, would pay a day's wage. Think of that. One piece of silver. 50,000 pieces. Why? Because it was a visual sign that they were repenting from their pagan practices. Because the gospel changes. Hey, listen to this. Repentance goes hand in hand with faith. The two are not opposed. Here some time ago, I got an email that began to talk to me about how repentance is simply a mind change and it doesn't necessarily reflect itself in actions. I said, well, that is not the understanding that I have of the New Testament word repent. Repent does mean to change your mind, but it also means a change of who you are, a change of your lifestyle. I would even say that real change takes place when there is real conversion. If there's real conversion, there's real change. Later, Paul would preach and he would say that they should repent, turn to God, and do works befitting repentance. James would say, right? He would say, show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. We are not saved by our works, but guess what happens? When God changes us, when he, when he comes into our heart, it is a life change. If there is no change, I'm just going to be honest. I'm just going to put it out there. If there is no change, there is no conversion. If there is no change, there is no cleansing. If there is no change, there is no Christ. Because when Jesus Christ comes into your life, you will never be the same. Ever. Some of you look and say, but he loves us. Yes, he does. Say, he loves us just like we are. We don't have to change. You have, you've got that right. You don't have to change. There are too many people that are in this community who say, I, I'm not going to that church until I get myself together. Or I'm not going to give myself to the Lord until I get myself together. Listen, you will never get yourself together on your own. God does love you, and he loves you just like you are. You don't have to get... You don't have to get fixed up. You don't have to get, no, you don't have to do that. All you got to do is come to Jesus. But get this, he loves you so much that he will not leave you like you are. Today in our culture, see, people are saying, you just got to love me. I just can't change. No, by the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, you and I and everyone who trusts in him can change. I can't do it on my own. Oh, no. But when the Holy Spirit continues to work in my life, he can wrought change in me. And I'm still in process. I'm not telling you we got it all together. We come and we experience change, but that is what sanctification is called, that we continue to change. We continue to grow in him as the Holy Spirit works. He loves you. He'll accept you just like you are. But he's going to work a change in your life. The gospel really does change us. We are new creatures in Christ. And as we've been studying on Sunday night recently, Colossians chapter 3, there are some things in our lives that we put off thanks to the mercy and the grace of God and the Holy Spirit's work. We put off some things and we put on some things. We put off some of the immorality. We put off some of the indecency. We put off some of those things because what we do is we put on the Lord Jesus and his attitude and his actions, we are different. 
And what's awesome is that as the gospel changes us, it then begins to change the culture. We've just celebrated the 4th, and we have given gratitude for the freedom that we have, which we should have. We've rightfully celebrated. But folks, we must always remember that the way our nation and culture will be changed is through the one Jesus Christ. Not through political parties, not through even government institutions, but when the Lord Jesus changes our hearts and works in us, it will change the culture. It will change our nation. I want you to go home and read the rest of this. It's very interesting what happens. It's amazing. Because when the people begin to turn to Jesus and they're turning away from idolatry and they're turning away from their immorality, it affects the economy. It affects the society of Ephesus. As a matter of fact, they're not buying those little idols anymore. And that affects the silversmiths and the trade guilds. And they get upset about it. There's one guy named Demetrius, this a storekeeper, a silversmith, and he leads a mob against those disciples. Demetrius, do you know that there's still a store that they found that bears the name Demetrius? Whether it's the same one, we do not know, but isn't it amazing how the Scripture is always right about what it says? It affected the culture. The people had given up. They'd given up. They'd given up their immorality and they'd given up their idolatry and they'd given up those things that were not pleasing. It reminds me of that book. It was written back, what, 1896? In His Steps by Charles Sheldon. One of the classics of our Christian existence. In that book, the preacher challenged all of his members to ask themselves one question before they did anything. Remember the one question? Oh yeah, many of you remember the question because many of you used to wear bracelets. What would Jesus do? That's where that came from. It's 1896, In His Steps, Charles Sheldon. And then the book, which is fiction, I know, but it goes on to explain how different ones who took that seriously made decisions in their businesses, made decisions in their relationships that would honor Jesus and that would change things. It was an incredible experiment. It brought a radical change. You know what? If we started asking that same question, what would Jesus do? What does the scripture say? What did he do? How does he teach us? And we started living changed lives. Radical lives as a church, as a people of God. Could you imagine how it would impact our society? I'm going to be honest. I don't think there would be a porn industry today. If Christians would say, no, we're not having any part of that. I don't think there would be quite the abortion industry today if the church, the Lord 
the family of the Lord Jesus Christ would just simply live as we should. I don't believe there would be quite the back and forth over racism or racism itself if we would be the people of God living the love of the Lord Jesus Christ each and every day. You know what? The gospel leads to real change. You can't come across Christ. You can't commit your life to him without being changed. And I say to you today, I say to you today, are you living that change? First, have you turned to him? And are you continuing to submit your life to Christ? Second, have you turned away from the idolatry? Have you turned away from the immorality? And are you continuing to turn away from those things? Have you committed yourself to doing what Jesus would do? Each and every day. Would you hear God's word to you? And would you respond to that Holy Spirit nudging in your life? I'm here in front in a moment. There will be somebody there in the gathering. Would you, would you follow Christ? And maybe today you need to talk to me. You need to talk to our minister there in the gathering. You need to talk to one of our other ministers. Would you come and let us help you turn fully to God and turn away from that idolatry and immorality that's got you enslaved? Let's pray together. Father, thank you again for this day. Thank you for the moments that we have to reflect on the gospel change. We give thanks to you for loving us when nobody else did. For loving us when we never deserved it. By sending your son on our behalf. Father, I pray that as we've experienced that faith and that trust, that we will live out change in our hearts and lives by your Holy Spirit's power. I pray that people could tell we are different. People could tell we have the attitude and the mind of Christ. And God, there are some who are here today that's never trusted you. I pray this would be the moment. There are some here today who have trusted some time ago, but they've become entangled in idolatry or immorality. God, I pray that they would run from it and run back to you today. And God, will give you all the honor and glory for what you alone deserve. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.